founding a company is incredibly hard. It can be a very, very lonely journey. There's a very real challenge, actually, with a lot of founders who make their job their existence, right? Being a company founder is who they are. In essence, what you're doing is that you're conflating your ego with your company. That is basically how the ego works, right? And as we get older, we get better at distancing ourselves. Well, some of us get better at distancing ourselves from who we are and what we own. What I often see in, in company founders is that you work your ass off. And for a lot of founders, they conflate what the company is with who they are. It, be it becomes part of their ego. That is great when the company is soaring because they get to kind of fly on the, on the heights of the company succeeding. And where I see a lot of really challenging things on the mental health side is where a company fails and the founder has completely identified with this company. That is a really scary place to be as a founder. Hi, I'm Carlos, co-founder of the Happy Startup School, and welcome to our Happy Startup Community Podcast. Along this journey of building the Happy Startup School, I've had the privilege of meeting amazing people from around the world. Whether it was across a banqueting table at our summer camp festival, or sat at a beach cafe in Goa during one of our retreats, each of them had fascinating stories to tell and interesting ideas to share that have changed how I look at business and life. This podcast is my effort to share these conversations with you and to open up your horizons to new perspectives and ways of viewing the world. I hope that they become a source of inspiration, learning, and connection. Enjoy. Um, so hello, I'm Haya. Uh, I am currently in Oakland, California, where I've been for about four years. And I've done a lot of moving around. Uh, I was born in Holland, grew up in Norway, spent a bunch of years in the UK. Um, and then when I met my wife, for the first four years or so, we lived on four different continents. So there was a lot of moving around, lots of exciting travel and stuff. And it's, uh, it's kind of weird to be, be rooted somewhere for a while. Mm. And, you know, we met, gosh, is it six years now? At least... 42 dog years ago. <laughs> yeah, I think it's around that time. I think and so, yeah. Yeah, that feels, that's, uh, yeah, it's coming up to seven years now because this is going to be our seventh altitude and you came to the first ever one. Yep. Um, and uh, at the time you just, uh, or you were in the, the uh, towards the end of Trigger Trap? Yeah, so... Uh... I think I was about to move to the US, weren't I? I think so. That's right. So Trigger Trap was doing pretty well, but had some pretty serious issues on its hands, uh, including a Kickstarter project that failed spectacularly. And um, my mother-in-law had gotten sick. She had a stroke and uh, my wife is American. And so we were like, crap, there's, there is some issues here and we could actually... Uh, do with moving to the US, US to help out uh, with her and her care. And uh, in the middle of all of that, I was kind of in a position of thinking, okay, what the hell am I going to do with my life? So I came to Altitude with this huge question, which was, is this really something that I... So I, had, I was talking to uh, a big um, company down here in Silicon Valley about joining them. I had an offer on the table to be a co-founder of a company uh, I was thinking about maybe doing some other stuff. And so I had all these choices that I was trying to work through. 
Uh, and of course, being pretty stressed about my, my company kind of not working out so well, but also realizing that I couldn't really run it remotely. And so um, handing that over to my uh, managing director and all that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of really intense stuff going on in my life at the time. And Altitude just kind of appeared. And I remember being on a, on a phone call, I think with Lawrence, in a state of abject depression. And I was like, I'd like to go, I guess, but I don't know why you'd want me. And Lawrence was like, okay, slow down. Let's talk about this. And we had a really good conversation. And I was like, damn it. Okay, you're lovely. And if you'll have me, I guess I'll come. (laughs) So that was one of those uh, moments. But Altitude was absolutely magical. And I, um, yeah, I made some really good uh, friends there. I, I, had some really good thought aids for thinking about these various uh, challenges that I was facing. And it was just a really wonderful way of uh, giving myself the time and the space to, to feel into what it is I actually want to do when I grow up. Mm. Mind you, that's now six years ago and we'll see how this growing up thing is working <laughs> out for me, but <laughs> yeah. But yeah, because the thing, one of the things I'm curious about, you, you had quite uh, an eclectic path. Is it right? You started in journalism? Yeah, I did a journalism degree. um, And then I vowed to never go into journalism again, a vow I since broke many times. And um, then I worked in uh, publishing for a bit. And then I worked as a TV producer for Channel 5 in the UK for a bit. I was a volunteer policeman in London, because (laughs) why the hell not? I uh, and around that time, I actually started my first company, Trigger Trap. and grew that pretty rapidly. That was going pretty well. Then I ended up uh, in the US, briefly worked on this company, ended up joining, uh, was a writer for TechCrunch for a while, started another company. That company, uh, we had some issues with the infrastructure and with it being a dumb idea to begin with, (laughs) and uh, decided to not do that. Ended up in venture capital for a couple of years. That was super interesting, and I absolutely loved the people there. But at some point, I had a realization around that role, which is actually really fascinating. So um, if you want that story. Uh, uh, You go with the flow. Um, (laughs) Okay. So there was a really interesting thing that happened um, with this venture capital role. I started understanding venture capital more and more. And my job there was as the director of portfolio, which is kind of a poorly defined role, but imagine it as like a head of user experience for the, for the startups and kind of an industrial scale startup mentoring wizard type person. And so I spent a lot of times with all these startups, just basically helping them think through problems, helping on a strategic level, figuring out what the hiring strategy should be, did a bunch of helping them with making good pitches and pitch coaching and that kind of thing. And I, uh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And then at some point I woke up and I realized, crap, the only thing that really matters in venture is the bottom line, i.e. what does the fund return at the, uh, sorry, what does the fund return to the limited partners at the end of a, a fund? And I was looking at my own role and I was like, wait a minute, if I do this job really, really, really well, I might have a tiny 5% impact on these companies. If I do it really poorly, whatever, it doesn't matter. And I, that's like 5% increase is not the, the scale that venture works at. If, if it's not like a, if it's not a exponential increase, 
it doesn't matter. And at some point, I just kind of logic myself out of this job making sense. And so I was like, well, I don't want to be in a firm where you know, the people were lovely. They liked me. I liked them. I think I was doing a good job, but ultimately what I was doing doesn't matter. And I kind of pitched them on for me to change my job to uh, VP of marketing because I realized if we could somehow get a bunch of more companies to come to this firm, we can actually, I can have a, a personal inc- uh, huge increase in deal flow, which could potentially have a 10x effect on the fund. It's like, okay, that is something that needs to be done in this firm. That is something that, uh, you know, somebody should do. And I'm doing a lot of blogging already. Maybe I should do it. They were like, yeah, cool. That sounds good. Congratulations on your promotion here. Go for it. Uh, And then I realized that there was some uh, mismatch in expectations around what a VP of marketing at this venture firm would do. And I think that was uh, really challenging for me because the things I'm really good at, content marketing, uh, kind of being noisy out in the world, um, didn't really work for that firm. And I was like, oh crap, what I need to be doing instead is more akin to a B2B sales role. uh, And I am not good at that. And I don't think I could be good at that. And so I actually just left. I I went to them and said, hey, I think I'm in the wrong chair. And and. I think I should leave so you can find somebody who's better at this, who can hit the ground running to take that on. And so that happened about three months ago or so. And about a month after that, I um, set up as a pitch coach. So now I'm full-time helping uh, companies, pitch their companies to, um, to venture capital firms. Wow. So I think uh, firstly for, for the listener who's, who's not, particularly um up to speed with how venture capital firms work right you you said that they're looking for that exponential impact or return yeah as i understand it the the model is it feels very much like a bit of a gamble sometimes it's like they're looking for that one big hit but they're then trying to get as many companies on board that potentially could be that one big hit is that correct yeah i think i mean uh, an investment firm would call that a diversified investment portfolio rather than a gamble. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there is something to that. And I think there's some interesting dynamics in this. And to really understand how that works, it's useful to understand how venture works. And uh, in a nutshell, a venture firm is basically just a firm that goes and finds startups to invest in them. They raise money from limited partners that are investors into these venture firms. And they invest that money on their behalf into startups. Now, say say they have $10 billion under management. They might take 10 million of that and say, okay, we're going to give this to a venture firm. And hopefully that 10 million turns into 100 million, but it's also possible that it goes to zero. So that is basically the context for how the money ends up at this venture firm. Mm. Now, the venture firm itself can't go and invest in uh, companies that that will maybe get a 10% increase over the year, right? Mm. Now, if somebody offers you a 10% bank account, you jump on the uh, opportunity, but this is meant to be a high-risk investment, right? You assume it goes to zero and you hope it goes to 10x. Mm. And so... The way this works is that you end up with a really interesting model where, and this varies from fund to fund, and I'm just kind of generalizing here, so I'm not actually specifically talking about my old firm, but you can imagine a model that you build where you assume that you invest in, you have $100 million, you invest a million into 100 firms, so you invest a million in each. You assume that half of those firms will go to zero, 
i.e., they don't make it, they fold, the you know they go out of business or whatever. They they don't make it. So that's half of them gone. Now the next few, uh, like the next thirty to forty percent, will return maybe two x or three x. So you put a million dollars in, and seven years down the line, uh, it sells for an amount that means that you get say two or three million dollars back. Now the problem, of course, is all the firms that have already failed. So even if you get a couple of 2x, 3x hits, that doesn't return the fund because it still has to make up for all the ones that didn't do well. So the way this works out in a venture model is that if you make an investment, it has to at least have the potential to return 50 to 100x, certainly at the, certainly at the earliest stages when there's very high risk. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is that if you, Carlos, come to me and say, oh, I've got this really, really good idea for a company and there's a pretty good chance I think I can get you a 5x return on your investment, I would be like, well, that's nice, but I don't care. That's not how this model works, right? Mm-hmm. So if I invest a, a um, $1 million, there has to be a path or at least a possibility for you to return $100 million to me. Now, that does really wonky things to uh, the fund dynamics, right? Because... It means that even pretty good and solid businesses that come in, uh, come to venture capital and try and raise money, they just don't make sense because either the market isn't big enough or the team isn't believable enough or any of these things. And so when I'm doing my uh, pitch coaching, I'm working with these uh, founders to basically, uh, I have my pretty canned speech about how VC works. Uh, when I'm not being recorded, it includes a lot more swear words. Uh, <laughs> but basically, it's it's a brutal business to be in because you have to convince someone that your business is going to be tremendously uh, big and grow at an incredible clip. Mm. Um, and yeah, in in the big scheme of that, a five x a five percent increase makes no difference. Even a five x increase, you know, you'd have to really um, figure out if that is that is worth doing within a venture firm context. So I can imagine, or the way I understand it then, is, is if you are one of those companies that can deliver that 100x increase, you get a lot of attention. Yeah. And if you're not, yeah. I assume you start to get ignored? Well, it's kind of, it's kind of complicated there too, because the, um, so the VCs have a uh, fund approach or a... Or a um, uh, yeah, it's a it's a fund or it's a kind of uh, what's the best way? Of, what's what's the right word for this? Uh, a diversification approach, basically. Hmm. And so there's two ways of thinking about that, right? If you so even within the venture firm, there's a limited number of people with a limited number of hours. And say some say they have ten hours to spend on a startup. Are they going to go to the one that is the mo- has the most promise? to see if they can increase that one a little bit, or they're going to go to the one that has the least promise to try and keep it alive. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's different approaches to this. Sometimes the, the biggest hits actually come from companies that have been limping along for years, not really finding traction, and suddenly something changes and it just shoots to the heavens. So there is some argument for spending time on the, on the ones that are struggling, but it's a, it's a lot easier to spend time on the on the companies that are raging uh, forward at great speed. And so it's kind of a balanced approach. It's like, how do you organize your time? How do you figure out what you actually work on? And um, the brutal truth is, right, if you're a founder, you have all your eggs in one basket. A lot of your money, probably, and all of your time, definitely, is in this one particular startup. 
And that is, a, that is a brutal place to be because that is incredibly hard work. And if it fails, everything fails. Whereas if, if you are one of 100 startups, that means you're literally 1% of a portfolio, you know, that probably means you get 1% of the attention. And so that's where that gets really complicated from a uh, value alignment thing between venture capital and between uh, st- startup founders. Because to the founder, it's 100% to them. And to the, to the venture capital firm, it's, it's, it's not quite 1%, to be fair. <laughs> but it is, it is pretty hard to choose where to deploy your time. Uh, so the, the word that sprang out quite clearly for me is brutal. <laughs> it's, yep. It's, um, for, like you said, for the founder, it's, it's everything. And for the fund, it's maybe a very small thing. Um, and then you talked about assistance at different stages, whether that's at the seed stage where they need to help them just maybe create some more direction and, and how that changes as you shift through gears, you said. Yeah. For someone going through that, and we talked earlier about even just when you're just running something and your attention is everywhere and you're not sure where to focus, that must be emotionally challenging. And how, what have you seen in terms of how it's affected founders in your experience of working as on the VC end? Um, I mean, being a founder is incredibly hard. It is a, it is seen by the outside world as a sexy job because everybody goes, Oh, Steve jobs, Bill Gates, Bezos. And uh, you know, yes, those people exist, but the vast majority of founders don't see that level of success. And um, there's a very real challenge, actually, with a lot of founders who make their job their existence, right? Being a company founder is who they are. Mm. And uh, this is where I would uh, be tempted to go a little bit into the metaphysics, where in essence, what you're doing is that you're conflating your ego with your company. Now, if, if, you, have, if, you, if you talk to a very young kid and you give them a candy or a, or a doll or something or a toy and you take that away from them, they are distraught. And the reason they're distraught is that from a very young age, um, children understand that the thing, sorry, they don't understand the difference between the things they are and the person they are. And what happens is that they will, um, when when the doll is taken away from them or when the toy is taken away from this child, they feel bereft because they feel like a part of them was taken away. They are the kid with the little toy train. They're not the kid who happens to be holding a, a toy train. Now, that is basically how the ego works, right? And as we get older, we get better at distancing ourselves. Well, some of us get better at distancing ourselves from who we are and what we own. So, you know, some people are utterly defined by how beautiful the car is they drive. And some people are like, I don't give a shit. I don't, I don't care. That doesn't define me. That's not part of who I am. Um, what I often see in, in company founders is that you work your ass off like 24-7 thinking about this company, uh, nurturing this thing, hiring the right people, solving the same problems. And for a lot of founders, they conflate what the company is with who they are. It, be- it becomes part of their ego. And so that is great when the company is soaring because they get to kind of fly on the, on the heights of the company succeeding. But as we already discussed, companies generally don't, well, they certainly don't just succeed, but many of them just fail. 
And where I see a lot of really challenging things on the mental health side is where a company fails and the founder has completely identified with this company. And uh, that can get really, really difficult. You know, seeing, seeing a company fail when you identify as the founder of this company, like if you introduce yourself and that is how you introduce yourself more than anything else, that is a really scary place to be as a founder. And you talked about assistance and it sounded like very kind of uh, technical assistance to do with the managing and legal side of a company. What assistance have you seen to do with the, the inner work for one of a better term? I think there's an interesting dynamic there, right? Um, and I think Silicon Valley in general isn't particularly good at keeping founders uh, well-being uh, as a priority. And not because they're callous, but because ultimately uh, as, a, as a species, we're not particularly good at talking about this kind of thing. Uh, and it's worth keeping in mind that a lot of, a lot of the help that is given is, hip, is given behind closed doors, right? So I, I wouldn't necessarily see if one of our founders is having a bit of a meltdown and you know, one, a partner or somebody else at the firm takes them inside and talks them through it and help, helps kind of contextualize things. But as a general thing, I think um, two things. One, it isn't really the, the investor's job to keep the founder sane. Um, whether, it sh- whether it should be that way, I have uh, thoughts on. <laughs> uh, but I mean, ultimately, the thing you have to understand is that venture capital is ultimately a financial services. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an investment instrument, right? And where it gets judged as an asset class is, is the returns. Um, and I say that just as a generalization. I know many firms that are incredibly good at helping founders on all fronts. Um, or to even suggest uh, therapy or to help pay for therapy and all that kind of stuff. But I think there are some real challenges there with the fact that founding a company is incredibly hard. It can be a very, very lonely journey because even within the org, you know, if you are surrounded by 30 staff that look up to you and that uh, want your help for stuff, that doesn't necessarily mean you can confide in them when you have serious doubts, serious existential doubts about the company. So it can be an incredibly lonely journey and it can be, it takes a certain mental fortitude that is, I think, pretty rare across the general population uh, to run a like startup that is uh, accelerating at the incredible clip that is inherently necessary for being a venture funded startup. And so, so the, the thing, the thought that springs to mind is this, the question is, can are, are successful founders born or are they made? I think that's a really interesting question and I wish I had an answer for you. Um, I think there is something, there's something statistically real about second-time founders are more successful than first-time founders. And based on that statistic alone, I would say that founders are made, not born. You know, if, if, it's some, if it's possible to get better at something, then, you know, clearly it's something that can be trained. But I think you do need to have a certain dogged determination that is pretty rare. Uh, and, you know, you have to be a little bit crazy. You have to be a little bit, <laughs> um, you have to be a little bit 
contrarian. Because most real category-defining huge companies are not there because the, 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 the thing they're building is obvious. You know, Airbnb struggled to raise money for super long because everybody was like, renting at your house? Are you crazy? They'll never catch on. Right? And they went through so many iterations and they, they were at death's door so many times before they finally, stuff started working and then they started growing. Um, but you know, the, the founders there were just doggedly deterministic. They were like, we will do this. We will figure this out. And there is something to that type of, of determination that is, yeah, I think rare. I think, I think most humans I know uh, are more um, are more likely to give up than that, and I think there is there is definitely something to giving up at the right time uh, and not you know grind it out until you're at at um, at the pearly gates. But there's also something to saying, well, uh, you have to keep going, you have to keep iterating, you have to keep you know you you, you don't. Uh, yeah, just you, you just can't give up. Mm. And that's that's a really hard balance to strike, I think. So the two words that spring to mind are, are stubbornness, or and or resilience. I think a healthy helping of both is is a very <laughs> important part of being a founder. And I I, I I use the word stubborn because for me there's a negative aspect to being stubborn. Um, I think. Some, for me, when you're stubborn, uh, you will do things even though you, you kind of know that they're the worst thing to do. Well, I think there's an interesting thing to that, right? If, if stubbornness is an internal thing, i.e. I will stubbornly continue even though I know it is wrong, yeah. that is probably not helpful. Yeah. If stubbornness is an external thing, so I say, hey, Carlos, we should absolutely go and do this. And I ask you 10,000 times until you finally break down and we start that company together. <laughs> And that turns out to be a billion dollar company, then that stubbornness wasn't bad, right? Mm -hmm. But it is that, I think it's that, it is the willingness to be contrarian. I mean, nobody ever started a multi billion dollar company in a space where it was obvious that they should have started that company. Mm. Facebook wasn't obvious, Google wasn't obvious, Amazon was a fucking bookstore on <laughs> the internet. That's the dumbest idea anybody's ever heard. And yet here we are. And of course, they made lots of really good decisions along the way, and they managed to keep growing and growing and growing. But the initial concept of doing what they were doing were objectively not a good idea, right? Yeah. But there is something to the, the slight reality distortion field that founders have about, hey, I can see the world it is today, and I can see the world it could be five years from now. I think I can help make that world happen. And that type of stubbornness is incredibly important in the in the um, in the drive towards founders being founders, and so there are these. I'm going to call them outliers because they are few and far between. These multi or nearly trillion dollar type companies. Well, I think so far we've only had one trillion dollar company, but sure. <laughs> and um, we have, and then there's the rest of us. Um, and I think what I'm getting at is that, you know, with these huge successes, you know, there's an element that sounds like a being stubborn. I'm guessing there's also an element of luck. There's an element of 
um, having the right resources and team around you, element of the right timing. For those, I think there's a there's a whole load of other businesses out there or startups that that aren't maybe making those 100x, 10x growth uh, trajectories. But at the same time, I think they they are trying to be those people for whatever reason. They have this. They're trying to be stubborn. I think what I'm trying to get at is this idea of um, understanding your motivations for doing something and pushing through with a company and making some, trying to make something happen. And so there's this, there's, there's what you talked about before, this idea of attaching yourself to the success of yeah. the thing you're trying to make, but also the realization of why you're trying to do it in the first place. And I'm wondering whether that is something that's only, you know, that is something valuable for a founder or someone trying to start something. Or there's this, I just hear this narrative is actually to build a business, you've got to be stubborn, you've got to be contrarian, you've got to just, you know, be a bit cutthroat. And that's how you build, in inverted commas, a successful business. I don't know if that makes sense or where I'm trying to go with this. Yeah, I think there's, uh, there's something to that. Um, I think you mentioned stubbornness and luck uh, in succession there. And there's something interesting about that to me because I think they're related. I think somebody who is incredibly stubborn will just keep trying. You know, they don't try the same time a hundred times. They don't try the same thing a hundred times. They try a hundred different things. And imagine that you have the same amount of luck. So you're throwing a dice and you throw the dice once and you get, uh, you know, a six and a three, you're like, okay, well, that was fun. I give up now. Or if you throw it a hundred times, chances of getting snake eyes at some point are actually pretty good if you keep throwing the dice. And I think that's where luck and stubbornness actually overlaps to a degree. The, if you have enough runway to keep trying stuff until it works, there is actually some power to that. There is something interesting that happens if you manage to get to a place where uh, you're able to iterate quickly enough that you can use your runway to rely on luck, essentially. Now, it helps that you, the way you, oh, this is where the dice analogy falls apart, but it helps that you're uh, surrounded by people who are really smart. And you propose a, uh, you propose a experiment and somebody says, well, based on my experience, this isn't going to work for these three reasons, but we could try and do it this way. And then somebody else pipes up and goes, oh yeah, well, actually that doesn't work for these reasons, but actually I'm not sure if that previous reason is still true. Let's test that. And so if you have like some really, really good people who know how to run rapid cycle iterations, uh, you can massively increase both your chance of um, snake eyes, but also the number of throws. And I think ultimately that is what... Um, that is what being a startup founder is all about. Surround yourself with the people who have the most possible experience in the field you're in, uh, both in terms of domain knowledge, so the problem you're actually solving, in terms of the technical knowledge, so the stuff that you do to solve the problem, and all the business side, the marketing side, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I am just rambling now. I don't actually remember mm-hmm. what your question was. No, so I, I, what I got from that, you know, you talked about if you have a long enough runway, so if we take, go back to the dice analogy, if you throw the dice, and I'm going to take a very, even just a statistical approach, if you throw the dice enough times, um, 
there's going to be a, was it a one in thirty six chance that you're going to get the score yep. you want. Sure. And so throw it thirty six times. At some point, you're going to get the score on average that you need. Yep. And so there is that idea of uh, stubbornness, persistence. We'll call it what you will. Staying in the game for as long as you can. Yeah. And um, there's something true as well to you know in a. I think all the companies I started, I didn't know that much about this space when I started the company. But once you spend, you know, eight hours a day immersed in an industry or in a space or in a group of people, you will learn pretty damn quick. Mm-hmm. And so your, the quality of your guesses goes up dramatically because, you know, you just have the context and you have the right people and all that kind of stuff. So there's actually something to be said for... Uh, learning a lot about the space. You can do a lot of that as like hands-on research, but I think to really fully grok something, you, starting a company is a very efficient way of, of doing that. Now, that is only true if you don't have to spend millions of dollars to get your answer. So, <laughs> you know, doing lean experiments there is an important piece of that. But yeah, there's definitely something to that. And so when, you know, if, if we take the, the, the tack that, okay, you just stay with it, be persistent, try lots of things. Then the, the other thing that springs to mind is the, the thing, what is driving you? Because while you may have a runway that is, is based on money, I assume a lot of people who actually make things happen, there's an intrinsic motivation that drives them to make this thing. Yeah, for sure. Some and I think so. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. Yeah, and I think some of the people do that in a way where their their motivator is money and they go, I'm just going to solve a problem in any space as long as it makes a ton of money. And that's fine. You know, that's that's the thing people do. But I think where it gets interesting is if you if there's something intrinsic to you that makes you a particularly good founder in a space. So, you know, if you've been a professional athlete for 30 years, uh, how can you take the skills you've learned there and apply that to this startup. This is why I often see that um, people who've done consulting or people who have worked in a space for a long time make great founders. Mm. Um, and you actually see that in, 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 eco- in startup ecosystems that have very short feedback loops. You see that a lot. So for example, Norway has an enormous um, oil industry. And there are founders there who, you know, have worked at the large oil company. They've spotted a very specific part of the process that is very, very expensive and hard to do. And they're like, hey, we're spending millions and millions of dollars every time we do this. But I think there's a way of doing this for $50,000. I think I'm going to leave my job, build that process, build the, build the company that, that solves this or invent a technology that solves this. And I know at least one person who's been bought like they left the company, then the company they left acquired the company he started. So now he's back at that company. He left again and solved a different problem and he got reacquired again. So he's worked for this big uh, oil company three times now because he's just a really, really good inventor, but mm-hmm. he doesn't feel like he has the freedom to do that inventing within the walls of that company. Because of course, there's lots of red tape, lots of lots of grubby little mitts on, on budgets and stuff like that. And he's like, no, I know the right way to do this. I'm stubborn enough to say I could do this in two ways, either by committee or I can leave my job and, you know, nail this to the wall, make it work, get the right people together and see if I can find some customers. Of course, the original company you just left is the main customer. So he gets, they, they go and offer him a whole bunch of money 
to buy that company again. That actually illustrates two different dynamics, right? One is it's very hard to do real innovation within an incumbent. But the other piece is it is much cheaper for large companies to buy startups than it is for them to, to have huge innovation labs themselves. If looking at Salesforce, for example, they have a really long history of buying tons of little companies because they, they have the money to spend and they realize that there are opportunities uh, where, where startups have cut off a little slice of the pie. And the people who tend to do that are exactly the people we're talking about here. There are people who are very good at spotting an opportunity because they have been so deeply immersed in a space for a while, and then they go and solve it, and then they uh, you know, exit the company again. Hmm. So um, it's interesting when we were talking about what that intrinsic motivation may be, uh, and it, you, know, you mentioned that maybe just someone wants to make lots of money. And I would, um, I would question, or I wonder, you know, is it really about the money? I was thinking of the example you gave the, the, the your friend in the oil company. It's like um, there is something else that's driving that person to invent other than making money. Yeah, I'm, I think purely, actually, so I don't know this person very well, but I can very easily imagine that it, it that actually stems from frustration. Mm. So, and I, I can see that myself too, right? If I If I see that I wants to solve a problem, but I feel like the organization I'm working within is stopping me from solving that problem, uh, I can choose to do one of three things. One is don't solve the problem. One is, you know, grind my teeth and ignore the fact that, uh, or be okay with the fact that it, it isn't as efficient as it could be. Or the other one is leave and go and do it myself. Hmm. But and that's for me this idea of the this motivation because even if someone thinks it's about money, I'm guessing the motivation isn't necessarily money. It's something around uh, a status or a lack or a need to prove themselves, a need to show that they can do something. And yeah, I mean, and you're in this world, right? So you probably have met a ton of people who are really driven who just have all these things. I think, honestly, I'm driven by curiosity. This is why I have the world's weirdest resume. <laughs> um, but it also means that I'm just, I get curious about stuff. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting. I want to learn more. And in the process of learning more, I might read a book. I might go and talk to someone. I might interview someone. I might start a company. And these are all, for me, they're all just ways of learning about something, which uh, is, I think, my intrinsic motivation thing. Um, at some per, at some point in one course or other, somebody did the slightly morbid exercise of saying, "Okay, what what would you like written on your gravestone if you were to have your life summarized?" And I was like, "I would be okay if it said learn and teach. Mm. If my entire life was learning stuff and teaching other people the stuff I've learned, I would be okay with that. I feel like that would be a pretty successful and fulfilling way of living my life." And I think that's. That's the interesting thing, um, and that's the thing I'm curious about, is that I believe there are many people out there starting companies or doing work without understanding why they're doing it. And then there's this, yep. what you said there is there's a, whether it's something you always knew or something that you've discovered, the, the thing that's actually motivating you is that need, that curiosity, that need to learn and that need to teach. And so then what, I, I believe that does is that then that opens up a whole world of possibility for people to then address that need in different ways rather than feeling that they have to start 
a particular company and make a certain amount of money or they have to stay in a certain role and do a certain job because that's the only way they can feed themselves in inverted commas. Yeah. But I think that differs from person to person, right? Some people are very strongly extrinsically motivated. So they're motivated by how people see them or by the fear of letting somebody down or uh, by money or what have you. And some people have deep intrinsic motivators, which are, I don't know, curiosity, uh, the eagerness to learn, uh, the feeling good about yourself piece. And I mean, most people fall kind of in both camps. You know, they, they draw, um, uh, they draw happiness from somebody telling that they've done a good job, but they also draw happiness from intrinsically feeling that they've done a good job. Um, and I think that is just different from person to person. And I think what, what I experience is that the best entrepreneurs are really strongly intrinsically motivated. They're doing it because they can't not, rather than they're doing it because, you know, this might be a way of becoming a billionaire. Mm. And this is where I'm, I was trying to get to maybe a bit clumsily around this idea of when you understand more about what motivates you intrinsically, and this is this idea of inner work, how you think that can impact or affect, whether that's good or bad, but just impact an entrepreneur? That is a really good question. I think for me, it is, um, you're getting very close to a, what's the meaning of life type question here, <laughs> um, which I think I, I welcome with open arms. I'm happy to have those conversations with people. Um, I think the magical thing that happens when people are able to have a deep understanding of who they are and why they do what they do, uh, that can help someone get a really strong understanding of why they do what they do. Um, and what I mean by that is in the case of you, you've been running uh, the Happy Startup School for the best part of a decade now. Um, you made that choice for a reason, right? Hmm. And as an external person who knows you a little bit, but we've never actually talked about this before, my external impression is that you're probably not doing this to get rich. Um, if you were, you were probably doing the wrong thing. But what you are doing is you are choosing to spend a lot of your time with community. And you are choosing to facilitate other people helping each other. And I think the community keyword of this is so important because that in itself is a, I think, an, in, an intrinsic um, uh, motivator. Now, the community itself is ec external to you, obviously, but the way you feel about being part of and being a leader and being a mentor within communities, I think is actually an intrinsic motivator. Yeah, and I, I think, so the way, the way my thinking is developed around this, so for instance, you take the example of why I do the work I do. Um, it's, it, it wasn't clear at the beginning and I don't think it was very clear until only in the last couple of years when I started to tap into what is it I need myself. And I discovered yep. I had a very strong need for connection. That was something that was very important to me. And so then it starts to make sense why community building is important to me because I need yeah, it sure. myself. And then and so there's this uh, this aspect, I think, of 
I believe, and this is why this is why I've been exploring this idea of inner work, entrepreneurship, leadership. You know, by understanding more closely what motivates and drives us, and and being comfortable with that, the more I believe the the more the better, let's say, impact or the higher quality impact that we can make in the world around us, whether that's being billion building billion dollar startup companies or or building communities or, or or pitch coaching. Yeah, for sure. And I think that is something that it's unsurprising to me to hear you say that this is something you care about. I think that is something that, you know, the way you light up in this context is obvious and it's clear, right? Um, but obviously it took you a while to figure that out as well. That is not something that, you know, I don't think we are taught. I don't think a lot of people stop and think, hey, I just had a really good day. Why was this day so good? What about this day was so good? And I wonder if, if the, the real answer to your question is somewhere in there. It's like, how can we give ourselves enough space to really feel into what it is that makes us happy or what, what it is that gives us motivation or pleasure or or feeling of self-worth or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I have this belief that it's that aspect of understanding what essentially makes us tick, come alive, even feel unpleasant feelings by being able to tap into that. That then, when, when, when you say us, who do you mean? People. Uh, you, okay. me, in terms of individuals. And I think it, I'm really actually more very specifically around founders, people yeah. trying to make something happen. Yeah. And I, so the, the hypothesis I have is that there are many people out there driven to make things in the world, build companies, but aren't really understanding why they're motivated by it. They're motivated by it because potentially there's an extrinsic reward of status and money and, and changing the world. And even that in the last conversation I had around this is like, maybe people are driven to change the world because of something inside them, not necessarily there's something outside that needs to change. Well, and that is something that's important to unpick, right? Because to a casual observer, uh, you building community could be either intrinsic or extrinsic, right? Maybe you really enjoy people looking up to you and thinking you're a leader and I can totally see how some people are driven by that. Or maybe you enjoy the deep uh, feeling of love of seeing your community or community that you're closely aligned with coming together because of the work you have done. Now, to an external observer, those two things might look the same, but they're, ex they're exactly the opposite motivators. Mm. And if you don't internally know which one of those it is that is making you tick, then you can't use that as a guiding line for how to make decisions. Exactly. And that's where I, I'm curious about you know, how, how founders could be supported in that journey, as well as... you know the money and the, the technical know-how by being more clear about what's motivating them, not because they need to change it, but being aware of it so that, like you said, to avoid close, too closely identifying with the things you want to create and understanding that actually you're motivated by something else. Um, this more yeah, for sure. 
But I also wonder whether that is something that founders need help with or whether that is something people need help with before they decide to become founders. <laughs> because yes. I think by the time you are a founder, it is kind of too late. And if you've raised venture capital, it's really too late. Um, but yeah, the, the, the importance of doing that level of inner work and feeling out, you know, what is it? What do I want? What do I need? And what do I desire? Those three things are kind of slightly different. And um, I mean, I'm only just doing that journey for me now. Um, and it feels like it's too late. No, not too late. It feels like I started too late. Uh, it feels important, but, it, but I, I definitely sense that I have some grief in my body about not starting this journey earlier. And it's interesting, interesting when you say, you know, when you should start this journey and with, I think it's one of those things it's, it's, it's all, it's never too early, but I also, you know, I, I would, I would offer it's never too late. I think it's, it's sure. I mean, there's a Chinese proverb, right? The best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best day is today. <laughs> um, but I think there is something to that. And I think honestly, there's been a few things in my life where I have brushed by big kind of, uh, uh, concepts. Sorry, there's a train running by outside. If that's the sound you're hearing, um, we were brushing by big concepts, and at the time I wasn't ready for them. But having doing a little bit of work on them, and and either not being interested or not understanding them, helped prime me for uh, for thinking about them again later. There are things that I'm working on now um, in therapy and in other kind of inner work type situations that the seeds for this were, were planted 15 years ago. Mm. And there's something really interesting about noticing that, Hey, actually I have been working on this. I have sought out articles. I've read books. I've, I've done a lot of work in these spaces that is turning out to be really important in terms of how I understand it now. So it is possible to not be ready to absorb something, but I think you're also right. It's never too early to at least look at it. And if it's, you know, give it a sniff, if it tastes well, eat it. Uh, or if you go, mm, not for me, not right now, that is also cool. You know, you can leave it behind and, and revisit it later or not. Yeah, no, I, I definitely. So where I understand that is this looking, doing this in a work, whatever, however we want to describe it. And that, that, maybe to put it simple is just, understanding how we tick what what drives us to do the things we do in the world and sometimes there are the way i understand it there are experiences in our lives that maybe we aren't conscious of how they've affected our current behavior and i think being able to look at those things needs to be a choice you can't be forced to do this work but i have a strong belief that when you do make that choice and you do come have an understanding of what these motivations are without needing to change yourself even, but even just having an awareness of them is it empowers you to act with, with more intention and clarity in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, I think the first time, the first time I went um, to do any real work like that was with a therapist and 
one of the first questions they asked me was like, tell me about your father and mother. And I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, <laughs> this is, you are such a ridiculous cliche. And I got angry with him. I was like, leave my parents out of this. They've got nothing to do with this. Can we just talk about the issues I have right now? And he just held my stare. And I was like, oh, fuck. Okay. Okay. Um, and of course my reaction showed something about <laughs> how important it was to work on this. Um, and I think there is something to that, right? There is, there is a lot of inner work that needs to be done and it takes many different shapes. For some people, it's community. For some people, it's spirituality or religion. For some people, it's trauma healing, you know, dealing with the shit you dealt with as a kid or as a young adult uh, and, you know, actually just staring that in the eye and working on that. Uh, for other people, it's um, better communication with people around you uh, or, you know, uh, working on the ego, figuring out what, what, how do you define yourself? How does your system define what's define what it is? Mm. And is there anything in there that shouldn't be in there? And it is a very difficult, um, and extended work to do. You know, some people work on this for a whole lifetime and they never get to, uh, to where, to where they need to go. Uh, and there's different methods for this too, right? Talk therapy is one thing. Some people have, you know, I, I know at least one, absolutely wonderful woman who regularly cries when she's dancing because she feels her trauma in her body and in, in doing movement, she's actually working it out and you know, that hits her hard and that is important to her. So that's another way of doing it. Um, some people use copious amounts of psychedelics. So that's another <laughs> way of, of uh, experiencing ego death, but I think there's no wrong way. Um, and I think it's just kind of a way of finding the way that, that helps you, whatever therapy, whatever philosophy, whatever uh, religion. And I think that is actually the most, in, most interesting thing to me. I've always had a very negative um, knee-jerk reaction to religion in general. Um, I like the strength people draw from religion. I don't like the impact religion in general has on the negative impact it has on many people's lives. Mm. And the amazing thing to me is that religion is actually one of those mainstream things that gets really close to answering some of these things for people. And it's all done with uh, symbolic and it's all done with stories and that kind of stuff. But there are definitely some things in every religious text I've been anywhere near that answers or at least helps you think about, gives you a framework for thinking about some absolutely existential things. And so what that proves to me is that, you know, for 5,000 years, probably much longer than that, humans have been thinking about their, their hopes, their dreams, their traumas, the why are we good, why are we bad, all these really big thoughts for an incredibly long time. And I find that deeply fascinating. And, and that has actually been an interesting opening for me into uh, spirituality. Mm. So... I really 100% hand on heart do not believe in tarot, but I flip over a tarot card every day and I read the description. Not necessarily because I believe that the literal meaning of a five of swords is important to me, but if you have a specific problem in mind and you pick something out of a deck at random and use that as a lens to observe something, occasionally you learn stuff. Mm. And it's just really interesting. So it's, it's basically like saying, um, 
uh, imagine you have a coin, right? And you say, uh, if it's heads, I'm going to think that, the, that, that everything is terrible. And if it's tails, I think I'm going to think that everything is positive. And you think about something really big in your life or a decision you're about to make. You flip it and you land, the coin will be right, mm-hmm. right? It will either be terrible or it will be great. And it's just about lensing how you think about stuff. And I think that is actually where there's a really interesting context for spirituality, maybe religion, maybe inner work, whatever you want to call it. It is the power of suggestion we have over our own heads and over how we react to things psychosomatically. And there is something really beautiful that comes in when we're able to, able to look at the same problem from different angles just because we want to. And of course, the great thing about doing this on your own is that nobody judges you. You can sit there and think about, you know, you can sit about thinking about really naughty, difficult problems and challenges, whether that is in your professional life, your personal life, your interpersonal life, um, and just sit with it. And sometimes I'm like, this makes no sense. This is bullshit. This has no impact on this whatsoever. And other times I'm like, ha, huh, I have never thought about this this way before. And there is something in there where you can actually play some really interesting experiments with your mind by just, by just letting your mind do its thing. There's, I've read a lot and listened to a lot around kind of neurobiology and that how our perceptions are governed by our beliefs. And, and I think we've, you know, you've touched on some very big questions there around what, this kind of work of exploring ourselves, but also exploring the meaning of why we're here can, can, can be some quite big things to consider. The other aspect of this though, for me is like when you, you know, you touched on the whole idea of ego there, thought, you know, what's in the ego, what's out of the ego. And then before that you were talking about how founders identify with the businesses they create and whether they fail or succeed. Yeah. they identify themselves as failures or successes. For me, even at a very pragmatic level of being able to consider what it means, what you're, who you are and what it means to succeed or not succeed and how you identify yourself as yourself can have, for me, simple outcomes or uh, beneficial outcomes with even like selling to be able to approach someone and to talk about what something you want to offer them without being attached to the outcome. Or like you said, with the, with, you know, rolling the dice a hundred times to get the score you need to, to start different things, new businesses, new approaches without being attached to whether, or if it works out well or not, is not that for that to be a judgment on you and your self-worth. Yeah, totally. And I mean, we only talked about this in the context of, of a startup, but you know, that goes much beyond that, right? It is, uh, where do you live? Uh, what are the people that you, uh, attach to, you know, who you're married to, who are you, who are your friends, who are you associated with, uh, where, what restaurants do you go to, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when I had this conversation with people, I, I every now and again talk about um, the movie or book American Psycho, um, mm. which is obviously the extreme example of what happens when this when this yuppie completely loses the plot and f- completely associates only with who he is. Mm. You know, there's a small segment in the film where he's talking about 
business cards and they're comparing business cards and he's having a personality crisis because somebody else has a nicer business card than him. And objectively, that is hilarious because it usually doesn't get drawn to those extremes. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it a little bit deeper, humans are like that. We will sometimes feel this pang of jealousy or something about something that is completely inconsequential to everybody in the room except you. Mm. And that, that, is, that scene to me is a really good example of how the ego gets mixed up with the material. Um, and that, that is something to do with, with concepts and stuff too, right? If you're having... Um, and, and that, that especially becomes uh, complicated when, when the thing your ego is attached to is things that exist in, out in the real world. So, for example, if you are born with boy parts, everybody around you thinks of you as a boy. But if you think of yourself as a woman and everything feels wrong, then th there's a really strong cognitive dissonance between how the world sees you and how your ego sees you. And so that very, very strong attached to, uh, attachment to gender and in a lesser degree to sexuality, who you're attracted to and that kind of stuff is really powerful and that fucks people up. Yeah. That's why you get a lot of people in therapy talking about their sexuality or gender identification or that kind of stuff. But I think it's actually just a couple of steps down the line from other ways we identify ourselves, right? I get very sad when people ask me where I'm from because I'm like, that's the least interesting thing about me. You know, I, my answer tends to be, I woke up in Oakland. How far back do you want me to go? <laughs> um, but I'm like, this is not, ask me a question that actually matters. Where are you from is not interesting. It's raining. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> do you have any questions that I actually want to talk about? And I think it's, it's having heart-to-heart -heart conversations with people where you're actually willing to be um, open and uh, vulnerable and intimate I think is one of those things that brings me such incredibly deep joy because it means that I am able to see someone and they're able to see me at a level that I am only recently becoming accustomed to. Mm. And I'm not going to lie. It's absolutely exhausting to be involved in such a deep, uh, in, in such depth of communication, but I would rather have an hour and a half conversation with someone and then need to go for a nap than natter on about football or the weather for <laughs> six hours straight. There is something around, yeah. There's there's a deep connection that create that's created when you you're able to open yourself to that way. And I, I believe there's something around all human beings that crave and really get nourished from those deep connections. But for whatever reason, many of us aren't able to do that because of the fear of because of a fear. Whatever yeah. that may be. Well, the interesting thing to me is I am definitely an introvert. I need to spend a lot of time by myself. I recharge the best when I'm at, on a Kindle. And I am completely at, at peace when I'm on a stage in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people. Um, and I don't really see a conflict there, right? What there, one is performing where it's really just me. You know, if you're on a stage, nobody's actually talking to you. It's, it's a one-to-many com communication, but it's really about you. Um, the biggest group I'm comfortable in is usually about four people. So me and three others, that's about, yeah, that's about right. Then I am energy neutral. Mm -hmm. uh, any more than that, I just burn energy like there's no tomorrow. And uh, I had always assumed that deep conversations would be sapping me of energy because I'm an introvert. And it turns out that is completely wrong. Having like one-to-one -one or one-to-two conversations about stuff that really matters, mm -hmm. you know, um, 
one of the phrases I like asking people now is, how are your heart and can you breathe? Mm-hmm. Like, do you feel light? Do you feel inspired? How, you know, how, how much love is in your life? Mm-hmm. And those are questions where you're like, okay, you can't skim over that. And I always let people say, actually, I don't want to talk about that right now. And that is fine. But I would rather have conversations on that plane than what I've done the previous 37 years of my life, you know? And it's that, yeah, it sounds like there's this, um, there's this journey that you're on. I think, you know, I've met many people in our community who are, who are on looking for those different ways of creating meaningful connection. Um, and uh, the, the phrase that springs to mind that I've heard many times, whether it's in the context of work or even in the context of a conversation is like, is this it? Because maybe there's something more yeah. deeper. Yeah. Well, I, I get it. Um, I've actually had a conversation about that exact phrase recently because <laughs> it is a single thing, right? Yeah. Uh, I think there's, there's never just one thing. There's always many things that are happening in our lives. Um, but there's also a wonderful book called uh, The Giant Leap that talks about that, which is, you know, if you think you are, have reached a peak of something and you want to climb higher, you have to take a leap of faith. You have to be willing to be doubted by your peers. You have to be willing to take a leap and say, okay, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to try anyway because I know in my heart of hearts that this is important. And the downside is you will often find that you alienate friends, colleagues, all that kind of stuff, because they don't see why you're doing what you're doing. And to our conversation earlier about having to be a little bit crazy, I think that is something that founders have all the time. They see a version of the world that doesn't currently exist. They think they are the person to be able to potentially help this. That takes some serious, uh, that takes some serious chutzpah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this is where it's interesting now that the, what what springs to mind now is you talked about being stubborn, uh, maybe being persistent, trying you know, you have this picture in your mind of the world and you want to make that happen. And maybe there's something around having that stubbornness but being compassionate at the same time. And it's, it's yes, it's, it's being able to create something, make something happen in the world but not do it in such a way that you neglect or even just uh, not take into account. You don't have to change what you do, but to not take into account how people feel about it. Well, in my mind, I don't even think that stubbornness and compassion are opposites. Mm. You know, I I know stubbornly compassionate nurses (laughs) who are, you know, who, who are compassionate. And I mean, that turns out into another extreme, which is uh, compassion fatigue, (laughs) <laughs> which is a real illness that is uh, incredibly problematic with people where at some point you're unable to care anymore because you've just given everything you have to give. You see this in animal shelters all the time. You see this in the medical profession all the time. And it's a type of burnout that is actually particularly insidious. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I always hesitate to use the word passion or passionate, right? Passion means pain. <laughs> and I think if you are truly passionate about something, you are tortured by that thing. Yeah. You know, I, I think it is probably not a good idea to be passionate about work um, or to be in fact passionate about most things. But what I do think is worth considering to be passionate about are the things that will occasionally potentially hurt you, but in ways that lead to growth. 
And that is a very difficult choice to make. You know, um, examples might be very hard exercise where you are, you know, you know you're hurting your body, but you're doing it for the better. It is, uh, you know, the heartbreak of breaking up with somebody. There's real pain in there, but you don't do it. You don't do it to hurt yourself or you don't do it to be a dick. Mm. <laughs> you do it because you have a vision of a future that is different. Yeah. And I think that is actually very closely related to how we're thinking and talking about founders in this conversation. You know, you, you see a vision of the future that is different and you want those changes to, be in the, to exist in the world. You're looking around you, nobody else is doing it. Well, <laughs> I guess it's you then kind of thing. Mm. Well, well, I think that's a great place to stop there. Um, that idea of growth, and I think not so much growth in 10x growth or 100x growth, but that idea of, of making change happen. Absolutely, yeah. What we want. I think that maybe that's for me the theme of this is um, having growth as the motivation and, and really understanding what that growth is, is for yourself when you're trying to make something happen, do something or move through this thing called life 100 percent, carlos i'd sign off on that <laughs> thank you very much Haya. thanks for listening to this happy startup school podcast we're on a mission to help purpose-driven entrepreneurs and individuals find more alignment between what they believe and the work they do. Because for us, happiness is when what you think, say and do are all aligned. Happiness isn't just a passive feeling, but an active way of living, which isn't always easy, but when it's done right, can be effortless. We're on a mission to help you find happiness by providing tools, courses and community that inspires you to follow the journey of building a happy startup. This will require finding out more about yourself as well as learning how to build a purposeful business. If you're excited by this, then please rate and subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform and then go to our website, thehappystartupschool.com. You can also read our blog at ahappy.link forward slash read. This is the last episode of 2019 and a bit of a milestone for me. The podcast started in February as a bit of an experiment, but I'm proud to have now recorded 50 episodes. Recording and producing an episode a week has taken a lot of time and effort, but at the beginning of this year, I had set myself a one word of intention of learning, and this podcast has felt so aligned with that. When I first started, I didn't know what I was doing. The first few episodes were very raw, but the podcast evolved after each recording, and over time, I discovered the style and format that felt right. Also, sharing these stories with listeners has allowed me to exercise my own practice of listening. I've learned as much about myself as I have about my guests. I'd like to thank everyone who gave up their time to join me on the podcast, and also to everyone who's taken the time to listen. On this 50th episode, I'm joined by one of our good friends and an alumnus of our very first Altitude Retreat, Haya Camps. He's had an eclectic career taking on the roles of journalist, entrepreneur, author, podcaster, VP of a VC and pitch coach. He's also one of the most well-read and knowledgeable people I've ever met with ideas and thoughts on just about every subject you can throw at him. Through my work with the Happy Startup School, 
one of the most common questions we've, uh, we're asked is about getting funding. In this episode, we talk about venture capital and what it does to founders. In the startup world, VC backing is seen as a badge of honor, but I've come to understand that it isn't for everyone. I learned from Hire that being backed by VC funding can be brutal. They'll support you with their time and money, but only if they can make a massive return on their investment. If you don't look like you're going to go big, then you might as well go home. Building the unicorn businesses that VCs are looking for can make you rich beyond your wildest dreams and a household name, but, but at what cost? While many entrepreneurs appear to be after the money and the status, what's really motivating them? During our conversation, we talk about intrinsic and ex extrinsic motivations and the importance of self-knowledge for entrepreneurs. Haya shares some of his own journey of self-knowledge, and we talk about the value of deep conversations and vulnerability. Enjoy. <laughs>